This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, August 15th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The New Yorker has awakened many people to the scourge of civil asset forfeiture, how it endangers basic property rights and gives police incredible leverage against average people. Scott Bullock is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice and co-author of IJ's Policing for Profit report. We spoke about asset forfeiture earlier this week. This New Yorker story has sort of reawakened interest in uh, civil civil forfeiture in a way that uh, it really hasn't been awakened before. But of course, people who've been following this story for some time as an issue, uh, what is the real functional problem here, legally speaking, with uh, civil forfeiture? Well, it's true. The New Yorker piece uh, really did generate a whole lot of interest and really captured uh, some of the really fundamental problems of civil forfeiture. You know, civil forfeiture got some attention back in the 1990s. There were tales of abuse. There was some media attention on it. Congress got involved, passed uh, a reform in 2000, which did improve at least federal forfeiture law up to a point. Uh, but a lot of people thought then, well, the problem is solved. Let's move on to something else. Uh, but what happened is that forfeiture practice really didn't change a whole lot. Forfeiture practices at the state level did not change at all because the federal legislation only affected the federal forfeiture program. And then also the one thing that the law did not change which really drives so much of the abuse is the fact that law enforcement gets to keep all of the money that they forfeit. Uh, so the New Yorker piece really highlights the problems of what happens when you give the people who are supposed to be out there enforcing our laws, police and prosecutors, the ability to financially benefit from those laws. It's a very perverse incentive and it leads to the very types of abuses that the New Yorker piece documents. Has there been a push? I know there's one reform that you and I talked about before we started recording here, is which is essentially just give the money to the general fund, the state legislature. Let let them have the money, and they'll they'll divvy it up as needed. Is there a push toward that? Well, there's certainly been some discussion about that. I think because of the New Yorker piece and a number of efforts uh, uh, that uh, we and other uh, folks have done to highlight the problem of civil forfeiture, people are really pointing to the policing for profit as the fundamental problem behind the law. There's a lot of other problems too. The burdens are placed uh, on the property owner rather than, uh, than on the government. People have to prove their innocence rather than the government having to prove property owner's guilt. But what really lies at the heart of the abuse is the fact that people, uh, that law enforcement gets to keep the uh, property that they forfeit. So yeah, a absolutely key reform would be to place the money into the general revenue account of the state, or at least to some type of neutral fund like uh, drug treatment or education. Uh, the most uh, fundamental reform would be simply to abolish civil forfeiture. That should be the ultimate goal because we in America should not be losing our property without being convicted of a crime. And that's exactly what civil forfeiture allows. People can lose their homes, their businesses, their cash, their cars without being convicted of a crime or in many instances even charged with a crime. That should not happen in a country that respects private property rights. One of the moments in this uh, New Yorker piece that I thought was especially galling, uh, and I think it, it draws out the leverage that these kinds of laws give to law enforcement, uh, was a father traveling with his family. Uh, it was local law enforcement were called in, and he was essentially placed in a room, said, look, either you sign over this substantial amount of cash to us, 
or we take your kids, put them in child protective services. What kind of leverage, uh, this case aside, does forfeiture give to law enforcement against individuals? Oh, unbelievable leverage. And um, what you're seeing oftentimes on the highways now are just shakedowns that are happening. You know, carrying a large amount of cash or what the uh, a police officer considers to be a large amount of cash, which could be uh, $1,000, $5,000. They just consider that evidence of your involvement in illegal activity, regardless of whether they found any drugs in the car or any other evidence of criminality, just the mere possession of what they consider to be a suspicious amount of cash is enough. They could say that, well, we suspect you of being a drug dealer or laundering money, and they will take the cash away from you. And because it's a civil proceeding, the burden then shifts to the property owner to try to get the money back. And so uh, oftentimes if people challenge it or raise a fuss, maybe the government will keep half, give you back half, and many of these cases never even get to court. So oftentimes what you see are people losing their property, losing their cash, and never having a court hearing because you have to pay for a lawyer. It's very expensive. If you're from out of state, you have to come back into the jurisdiction to fight uh, the civil forfeiture. So it leads to these very types of situations where people are having their cash seized or being confronted forced to sign away their cash if they want to continue on with their journey or like the instance that you mentioned in the New Yorker piece, if they want to keep a hold of their kids. There is an interesting interaction that occurs here between the federal government and, and a local police that allows local police to essentially identify a target and then in states where they otherwise would have to uh, cede the uh, winnings yep. uh, to uh, a, a larger government, the state legislature perhaps, they then get a kickback from the feds for having identified this target that the feds ultimately seize. Is that about how that works? It's exactly right. And that's one of the other fundamental reforms that have to take place is that you have to end uh, this uh, this incredibly unjust practice known as equitable sharing. Sounds nice. We're all going to get together and share. But what it really amounts to is it permits state and local officials to do an end run around state protections for property owners within a state and work directly with the federal government in order to take property. In some states, it might be procedurally more difficult to use forfeiture. Maybe most or all of the money doesn't go to law enforcement. So in those states, you see law enforcement working more more directly uh, and much more actively with the federal government, passing along the forfeitures to the federal government. The federal government prosecutes the forfeiture. The federal government keeps 20 percent, and then 80 percent goes right back to law enforcement within the state, completely defying state law protections and really violating the will of, of citizens. So that really has to change. Before we started recording, uh, we had identified this uh, idea of allowing the state legislature to take possession of whatever funds are seized. Uh, to what extent are law enforcement trying to fight against that? And is that something they really care about keeping in place? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing that um, uh, they will fight tooth and nail against. I mean, they don't really like any changes to civil forfeiture laws that grade granter, uh, grant greater protections to private property owners. But for instance, what happened in Congress in 2000 is that that was the one change that absolutely would not be tolerated by the Department of Justice and by but prosecutorial what are officials. They, what are they arguing? 
Well, to they're say, saying they're just saying, well, we need this because we need to get the bad guys, and this funds our efforts to get to get the bad guys. Um, but it's blatantly about protecting their own turf and to keep the money flow open. And I think another reason why this is getting so much attention now uh, is the fact that you see more and more of a reliance on this by uh, uh, law enforcement officials in an era of tough budgetary times uh, where the monies uh, might not uh, be be there as much as it once was, you're going to see increased efforts to focus law enforcement activities on the things that go- are going to raise money for these departments. And that's not what law enforcement should be about. It should be about the fair and impartial administration of justice. But, you know, every economist will tell you incentives matter. And if you give people perverse incentives, it should not be surprising that they're going to act upon those incentives. So uh, that's something that really uh, does need to change. Henry Hyde was uh, a congressman who was took up this issue, and that was the 80s and 90s when he was doing that. Is there anybody who is leading an effort to try to reform civil forfeiture today? Well, we're starting to see a, some interest in this again. Uh, with um, We published a report, uh, Policing for Profit, back in 2010, which really highlighted and updated a lot of the abuses. There's been a lot of interest in that. We've been, uh, Cato's been doing yeoman's work on this for decades, and you're really seeing this to start taking off in uh, with the members of the public uh, uh, recognizing that this is a problem. This is one of those issues that really does cut across partisan lines. The reform efforts back in the 1990s were sponsored by people like Henry Hyde and John Conyers and Barney Frank and um, uh, Bob Barr uh, was involved in this. So it's really one of these issues that unite people on all sides of the political spectrum that happen to care about civil liberties. And it's one of these things that people just simply can't believe it happens in America. When you read this New Yorker piece, people are just shocked that these practices even take place. And if you told people about this, they'd say, oh, come on, that, that can't happen in, in a country like America. Um, but, uh, but it does, and it's been happening for years. And so I think once people are aware of it, you see um, a lot of interest in saying, you know, something really ought to be done about this. But it just can't be through um, legislative works. Uh, we're doing strategic litigation to try to change the laws. Um, uh, more studies have to be done because it's very hard to get information about how much money is even flowing because there's not a whole lot of transparency and accountability. So there really has to be a a fight against this on a number of different uh, fronts. But thankfully, uh, public consciousness is being raised about this, and that will hopefully lead to uh, many changes in in the years to come. What's the scale of this in terms of funds or assets that are actually being seized? Yeah, I mean, at the federal level now, uh, ever since the law was changed back in 1985 to put this profit incentive in, the assets forfeiture fund has topped over a billion dollars each year. This past year, it was over $4 billion because of a a, a few large number of forfeitures that the federal government uh, has done. It's tens of hundreds of millions of dollars on the the state and local level. Uh, But nobody knows the exact amount because especially in certain states, it's hard to get these numbers. Law enforcement isn't required to report them in many different places, but it is enormously financially profitable for law enforcement to do this. A recent study 
done of law enforcement agencies said that 40% of law enforcement agencies say that forfeiture is a necessary budgetary supplement for their agency. So you're seeing an increased reliance on this and increased efforts to try to take as much property as possible for people. Scott Bullock is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. You can read more about asset forfeiture at our website, cato.org.